Well, we have been systematically making our way through the book of Matthew uh, for some time now. I actually looked it up. We started back in April of last year uh, with Pastor Mike. Uh, began his study in, in Matthew, where I was able to come in September, pick that uh, study up, and just been a blessing. Uh, today we're going to continue our way through chapter 19 of the book of Matthew. Uh, recall that last week we began our look into chapter 19 by addressing the issue of marriage and divorce. And we also noted how chapter 19 was the beginning of a major change in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. In the opening verses of chapter 19, we read of how Jesus had completed his ministry in Galilee and was now beginning to make his trek to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And so we pick up today in verse 16 of chapter 19 as we will come across the account of one I'm sure most of you have heard of, the rich young ruler. Okay. If you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to make your way to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bible and to go ahead and stand as we read the opening verses of our account this morning. Okay. I will uh, read through, actually we'll read verses 16 uh, through 22 just to get us started. Uh, and uh, like I said, we're, we won't finish. I had hoped to finish, but the Lord had other plans. And so we won't be finishing chapter 19, but we're getting to... Uh, ultimately to verse 26, but we'll just go to 22 to get us started. Matthew chapter 16, or chapter 19, excuse me, verse 16, it begins. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would lead and guide us through your word this morning. Lord, I hope that each and every one of us uh, that is here today has come with an anticipation and an expectation that you're going to speak to us today. Lord, I know that we are in different areas and different seasons of life, but yet I'm confident you can speak to each and every one of us this morning and that you have something for each and every one of us this morning. And so, Lord, we pray you open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see that which you have for us this morning. May we uh, just be yielded to you and to your word. We pray your blessings upon our time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. We read in our opening verses uh, about a conversation a, a man has with Jesus regarding eternal life. This account is, is actually recorded for us in each of the synoptic gospels. 
Uh, remember the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They uh, kind of have the same timeline and same chronology. That's kind of what John's a lot different. Uh, obviously talking about the same story, but uh, not definitely not the same chronological pattern that's seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so uh, actually all three of those synoptic gospels cover this account. And from those other accounts, we can gather more details about this man. Namely, that this man was young, indicated for us in verse 20, as we read of our text uh, here this morning, that he was rich, which Luke explicitly tells us. Uh, We can almost infer that by him having many possessions, but it actually tells us in Luke that he was rich. And also that he was a ruler of some kind. Presumably, a lot of people believe maybe a ruler of a local synagogue. And so uh, this also coming from the Gospel of Luke's account. And so commonly we refer to him, and I'll be referring to him today, as the rich young ruler. And so uh, remember as well, if you were with us last week, that at the end of our account we noted how Jesus and his disciples, they were departing the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and were headed out upon that road. And this is where the rich young ruler approaches Jesus on the road somewhere in the region of Judea prior to them entering into Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jesus, he does so swiftly yet humbly. Okay? Mark's gospel tells us that he was running to Jesus and the disciples and that he actually knelt before Jesus upon arrival. And Mark 10 verse 17 tells us of his approach. The rich young ruler, in his conversation with the Lord, He asks him a couple different questions. And so today we will look at these questions and Jesus' responses to them and try to understand what the Lord was trying to teach this rich young ruler and also what he wants uh, for us to learn today as well. The first thing the rich young ruler had to say to Jesus was, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This young man, he seems to want to know the means by which he may obtain eternal life. Mark and Luke's gospel actually uses the word inherit eternal life. What do I need to do to get into heaven? What do I need to do to be part of the kingdom of God? What do I need to do in order to receive eternal life? And this is a very great question to ponder. One that is very important to seek resolution to. Depending upon whom you may ask, you may get different answers for this question. Some may say that you need to clean up your life, that you need to repent from all the wrong you've done and stop doing those things. Some may say you need to go door to door telling others about Jesus in order to be saved. Others may say you need to pray a certain type of prayer or that you need to read your Bible in order to be saved. While others even say that speaking in tongues is needed as evidence of being received into the kingdom of heaven. You know, the the answer to this question, it it is very, very important. It's what your and my eternal status rests upon. The answer to this question of how how do we receive eternal life? What do we do? Is there anything that we can do to receive eternal life? How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? 
And so let's look at how Jesus responded to this rich young ruler. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus addresses two different aspects of the question that was posed to him by the rich young ruler. He kind of breaks it up into two kind of sections. Okay? First, he addresses the idea of him being a good teacher. Jesus asked the rich, younger, it, rich young ruler why he referred to Jesus as good, indicating that there's only one that is good, and that's God. Okay? Romans chapter 3, Paul actually quoting from Psalm chapter 14, when he states the fact that there is none who does good. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. Okay? That's a point, our first point. Okay? It's not a very uh, feel-good point, but it's a point nonetheless. None of us are really good. Okay? God alone is good. We are sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us. Okay, and, and oftentimes when we like to compare ourselves to our fellow man, we may think that we're pretty good. And we like to use that word good. I'm a pretty good person. Okay? Uh, but our fellow man is not what we're measured up against. Okay? Up against God and his law, none of us are good not one of those, you know, feel-good bumper stickers you put on your, you know, none of us are good. You know, that, that's not a feel-good type of thing, but it is a truth from Scripture. And that's what Jesus is saying here. None are good. Only God is good. And here, if you think about it, Jesus is saying one of two things. He's either correcting the rich young ruler and telling him that he should not call Jesus good because only God is good, and in a sense, separating himself from God. Or, he's asking the rich young ruler if he means to associate Jesus with God, rightly identifying our Lord as good and therefore as God. I I do not believe Jesus would try to deceive the rich young ruler into thinking that he was not associated with God. Which leads me to believe that Jesus was trying to get this young man to really think about who Jesus was in relationship to God. Do you really believe that I am good? Because only one is good. Do you believe that I am he that is good? Do you believe that I am God? You know, and, and at first when we... Uh, it may seem that his questioning about being called good is like, why would he, you know, what's the big deal, Jesus? Why, uh, what's that have to do with the answer to the question of what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life? We may think it has nothing to do with the question, but in all reality, it is the key to the answer that the rich young ruler is seeking after. The key to the answer to the rich young ruler's question is built upon the identity of who Jesus Christ is. That he's God. Jesus, he then proceeds to address the good works the rich young ruler asked about. I find it interesting that Jesus told the rich young ruler that if he wanted to enter into eternal life, that he would have to keep the commandments. Jesus knows very well that nobody 
is able to wholly keep the commandments. He alone is the only one that's ever been able to keep all the commandments and fulfill all of the law. And so why tell this young man to follow the commandments and try to keep the law? He's almost kind of setting him up for failure. We might wonder, why would he do that? Why would Jesus tell him to keep the commandments knowing that that's really not going to get him there? He's going to fall short. I suggest to you that Jesus points him to the commandments, to the law, because the law is what shows us that we are sinners. Jesus wants this rich young ruler to know that he's a sinner, that he falls short of the glory of God, that despite what he may think, he's not good. And despite what others may think, this guy's got it going on, he doesn't. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Because we have the law, and we can look at it, that's how we know we're sinners. That's what we look at it and it says, Thou shalt not covet. Oh, covetousness is a sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, adultery is a sin. The law tells us what sin is. The law shows us where we fall short. After hearing Jesus tell him to follow the commandments, the rich young ruler, he had another question for Jesus. And so let's read what he said in verse 18, and we'll read Jesus' response as well through verse 19. The rich young ruler, he replied in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Which which commandments? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In order to clarify exactly which commandments Jesus was referring to, the rich young ruler, he asks the question, which commandments are you referring to? And at first we might kind of think, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get by as easy or as little as possible? I don't think so much. Uh, that it's that way. I think that this is a legitimate question to ask. Okay? By the days of Jesus, uh, in the, the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had turned God's original Ten Commandments into a list of several hundred commandments. And so we can understand this young man's uh, uh, questioning and saying, well, which ones are you talking about? Because there's a lot of them. Are we talking about just the, from Moses or what all the Pharisees say and, and what about all these other dietary laws and restrictions? What, what laws? Which commandments are we talking about here? Jesus responded with a list of six commandments. Remarkably, five of the six come from the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, the Ten Commandments, most of you probably know this already, but just to clarify, uh, traditionally we break them down into two tables, the Ten Commandments. Okay, uh, the first four commandments deal with your relationship with God. Okay, your your vertical uh, relationship. Okay, uh, love the Lord your God. Uh, you should have no other gods before you. Don't have any idols. Honor the Sabbath. Uh, don't blaspheme uh, the name of the Lord. Those are things dealing with God Himself. The last six they deal with our relationship with one another. Okay, don't. Don't kill someone, don't, you know, steal from people, don't lie to people, you know, how we interact with one another. And interestingly enough, Jesus 
Later on in the book of Matthew, as we'll cover uh, in a few months, I'm sure, uh, we'll summarize not only the Ten Commandments, but all the law and the prophets into two commandments. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, in reply to being asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here again, there's a distinction. The first commandment deals with issues regarding our relationship with God. Loving Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And the second commandment deals with our relationship with one another. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus points out five of the six commandments that deal, all of them dealt with our relationship with one another. And the sixth commandment that he gave to him was more of a summary statement of those specific commandments that deal with our relationship with one another. You know, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're actually listed in both Exodus chapter 20 as well as Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if we were to look those up, we'd note that here before us we have the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. We have the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie, basically. And intriguingly, for some reason, which I think I have a good idea why, Jesus stopped after the ninth commandment. And then he simply summarized them by saying, you shall love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. This list of commandments that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler to keep all centered upon his relationship with his fellow man. And none of them really had to do with his relationship with God. Jesus is going to address that issue after the rich young ruler has one more question. And so let's read what his one more question was in verse 20. And we'll actually read through 22. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I don't think the rich young ruler was speaking boastfully or arrogantly, maybe a little assuming in his assessment, but no doubt I believe that this rich young ruler was very sincere when he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. To the letter of the law, perhaps this rich young ruler could say this based upon these commandments. He'd never murdered someone and maybe he had never stolen from anyone uh, or uh, committed adultery. But I I certainly do not believe that he held to the spirit of the law. Jesus addressed the, the spirit of some of these laws when he spoke during his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The Spirit of the law says if you're angry with your brother over no good reason, then you're in danger of being found guilty of, of murder. That, that anger can be the same as being guilty of murder. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus addressed the spirit of the law in regards to adultery. When he said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This rich young ruler, he may have kept the letter of the law, but it's highly doubtful that he kept the spirit of the law. And I, I do find it significant that even though the rich young ruler confidently declared that he had indeed kept the commandments Jesus had rattled off to him. He still asked Jesus, what do I still lack? Why didn't the rich young ruler rejoice and celebrate? You know, why wasn't he filled with excitement and joy, realizing that he had kept the commandments that Jesus had listed off? I think and then I mean, I'm so, showing my sinful side here a little bit. But I think if that was me, I'd be like, yes, eternal life. Check, 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 check. I'm there. But not the rich young ruler. Okay. Even though he asserts that he had kept the commandments that Jesus listed off for him, he knows somewhere inside him that there's something that he still lacks. There's something he still needs. Somehow this man knew that he needed more. This man, you know, he seemed to have it all from the outside. If we were on the outside looking in at this man's life. Okay, he was rich. He had many possessions. Still young with a whole lot of life still yet ahead of him. Remarkably, even at the young age, uh, at a young age, he was already a ruler. So he was a man that had power and prominence. He seemed to be a morally upright man. He wasn't one to lie or cheat or steal. And he seemed to have a, a good relationship with others. And, and looking on from the outside, one might think, man, this guy's got it all. He's got the good life. And he's got a lot of great things to look forward to. And yet he was able to discern that, that even with all that he had going for him, he was still lacking something. You know, doing good works was not enough. He was still lacking. It's the same for us. Good works will not get us there. There's no, there's no fulfillment just in good works. Okay? Good works are good. Okay? We call them good, right? And I would encourage people to do good works but we can't try and find fulfillment and, and contentment in our good works alone. This guy, he realized, even everything he had going for him, it was all good. It was still lacking. And Jesus, he identifies to this rich young ruler that which he lacks. Jesus said if he wanted to be perfect, the idea of that word perfect being complete, lacking nothing, okay, then he was to go sell his belongings and give to the poor and he would have treasure in heaven and then he was to come and follow after Jesus. Jesus brings up perfection here and I think he does so for a reason. 
Because the only way to be justified by the law is to keep the whole law. Okay? To be perfect in every single aspect of the law is the only way that we can be justified by the law. You had to be completely you had to completely fulfill the entire law. You could not be found lacking in anything. And James teaches us that for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James chapter 2, verse 10. One stumble is all that it takes to make us guilty of breaking the law. And it's a point I think it's important to make. Anything short of perfection is sin. I think sometimes we use sin as a, as a bad word. Ooh, that's, that's sin, right? And we think of it's a really terrible thing. It is a terrible thing because it separates us from God. But sin can be just missing the mark by a little bit. Okay? Sometimes we can be totally off target, right? We're, that's sin. That's easy. But sometimes we just miss it by a little bit. That's still sin. And, and James tells us if we, if we fall short in just one of the laws and we mess up in one of them, we're guilty of doing them all. The rich young ruler, he may have kept the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment and the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment and the ninth commandment. But did he keep them all? Do you guys know what the tenth commandment is? The tenth commandment deals with covetousness. It involves desiring things that are not yours, and it's pictured by the acquisition of many material items. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, to take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You see, I think, I think Jesus purposefully left off the 10th commandment when he was rattling off commandments to this rich young ruler because he knew where this man's struggle was. And he wanted to be able to, to expose it and to shine a spotlight on it. If he would have just said, have you done five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10? And he would have been like, mm, I, you know, maybe I haven't done that one, just walk away. But he says, hey, have you done five through nine? Yeah, yeah, I've done those. Okay, let's look at number 10. Let's look at where your heart's at because I know where your heart's at I don't believe he did this to shame the man, but simply to be able to shine a light upon, upon where he was guilty. And, and in love, actually it tells us in Mark that he, uh, in Mark's account that he looked upon him in love when he spoke to him. Jesus was loving this guy, and he, and he said, when he highlighted, what about your possessions? Okay. In love, he, he wanted to identify for this man where he had fallen short of perfection. To try to show him yet again that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. And despite what he or others may have thought, he wasn't good enough to earn eternal life. This commandment that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler, it's not meant to be a universal command. Hey, we're not to make application and say, this applies to every one of us, and we all need to go sell everything we have and give to the poor. Okay? It's not a universal command. Jesus is not telling us all to do that. Jesus was identifying this man's sin, this man's hang-up, this man's idol, if you will, that he had set up and he had allowed 
it to keep him from following after the Lord. The commandment for us that is universal is that we ought to come and follow him and not let anything to hinder us from coming to the Lord. For this man, his possessions kept him from following the Lord. He had set up wealth and material gain as an idol. He was guilty of breaking the first commandment and the second commandment. He, he had placed a God before the Lord and he made his things into idols that took the place of the Lord. His relationship with God was not in order, although his relationship with man seemed okay. But even in that, even in knowing that he didn't fulfill the tenth commandment, it showed that he really didn't love his neighbor as himself. He wasn't willing to help out his neighbor, the poor. You know, Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The rich young ruler was serving the God of mammon. Riches. And maybe for us, it's not wealth and material gain. Maybe it's something else that is keeping us from coming to the Lord and following Him. Maybe for us, it's pride that's keeping you from the Lord. Or perhaps guilt over sin. Sometimes I think we just have a, a guilt over our sin and thinking, I've done too much for God to forgive me, for God to love me. Maybe it's bitterness or anger, past situations that have happened, and we're allowing those to keep us from following after uh, the Lord. You know, and I don't know what it is, if anything, that is keeping you from the Lord. But I do know this, that we cannot allow those things to keep us from coming to the Lord and following Him. This young man was not able to accept the saying that Jesus shared with him, and he, was, he went away sorrowful, it tells us. This man was, was filled with sorrow, but nowhere do we read of him answering the call to come and follow the Lord. The scriptures actually speak of two different types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow results from a heartfelt conviction that we have offended God by our sin. It is an acute sense of sadness that we experience as a result of the sins that we have committed. That's godly sorrow. We are deeply moved by our sins against God. That's godly sorrow. Okay? 2 Corinthians 7, it teaches us that that godly sorrow will lead us to repentance and ultimately to salvation. It is a great thing, godly sorrow. However, there's another type of sorrow, worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow does not lead us to repentance, but rather death. Worldly sorrow does not make the connection between our sin and the offense that it is against God. It is a selfish sorrow that often produces bitterness 
because we don't get what we want or we don't hear what we want to hear. Ultimately, like all other sin, it leads to death. Worldly sorrow is not a good thing. The rich young ruler was given the opportunity to respond to Christ, to come and follow after him, and instead he walked away presumably filled with worldly sorrow because he didn't like what Jesus had to say. He was unable to accept what he had said. You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus, as the rich young ruler walks away sorrowfully, I find it interesting that Jesus did not go chasing after the rich young ruler. He didn't try to encourage him regarding his sin in his life. It wasn't as if he saw him walking away sorrowfully. Okay, come back. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the issue here. And let's get to the needy, you know, the, the, to the nit and gritty of it all. And, okay, we, you know, let me encourage you. He, he set the mark. He said, this is what you need to do. He shared with him what was required. And he let the rich young ruler make his own decision. Jesus will not force himself upon any man. And he will not chase people down if they reject him. And, and oh, I, I'm sorry, let me lighten it. Maybe make it a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable for you. You know, I, I really want you to, to come follow me. And so I'm going to lighten it up a little bit for you. We don't see him do that ever in the scriptures. He gave the man a choice. And we are all given the freedom and the responsibility of choice. The rich young ruler decided for himself that his possessions were more important to him than eternal life. A horrible choice, but it was his choice nonetheless. Let's hear what Jesus had to say regarding this man's situation to the disciples. Let's read verses 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, turning his attention now towards the disciples, explained to them that it was very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What about riches make it difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven? We're not specifically told here why uh, Jesus doesn't explain or elaborate, uh, but I would like to propose a few reasons why this could be. Number one, I, I believe riches tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the age to come. When we have riches, we can enjoy some of the comforts that riches can bring. And we can get comfortable and we find ourselves being satisfied with what the world has to offer rather than living for the eternal. 1 John chapter 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And I think riches can tend to make us love the things of the world and be satisfied with them rather than longing for eternity. Number two, I also believe that riches and the lure of them can draw us away from God. 
I believe that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves to be just like this rich young ruler who sought out riches at the expense of seeking God. That happens in our lives sometimes. When earning that next dollar or going and and getting that promotion and putting in the extra time and the effort because we want to succeed, we want to have that bigger paycheck. You know what happens is we succeed and we seek after those things. Our desire of seeking the Lord gets put on the shelf. And we need to be careful about that. Thirdly, with riches, sometimes I believe there comes a false sense of independence. We can find ourselves depending upon our own bank accounts, our own credit cards, or our own paychecks when God really wants us to rely upon Him and to be dependent upon Him. Lastly, the Scriptures instruct us that the love of money is a, a, a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money, if we allow money to become our focus, it will lead us into very many great evils. And so that, I believe, are a few reasons. Are, those, are, those are a few reasons why I believe Jesus explains how it's, why it's so difficult for people who are rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Understand this, okay? Jesus is not condemning those that are rich. There isn't anything wrong with having riches. Having money is not sinful. I I like what Warren Wearsby had to say regarding wealth. He said, "It it is good to possess wealth if wealth, wealth, does not possess you. It's good to possess wealth if wealth does not possess you. You know, it's a common phrase we say that our, our possess, possessions have possessed us. Okay? It's that idea that we, those things become more important than seeking the Lord, than following the Lord, than living for the Lord. You know, there's instructions actually given in First Timothy later on in that same chapter, chapter 6, and he talks to the people that have money. He says, hey, those that have money, great. You know, use it to be a blessing to others. You know, uh, provide for those who are in need uh, and, and almost the idea that God's just going to continue to bless you as you are a conduit. You are a uh, supplier of blessings to others, and he uses that. And so a lot of great people in the Bible okay, that God used were wealthy. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Only when wealth uh, possesses us, when it becomes more important. Okay? He's, Jesus is simply stating that it's difficult how difficult it can be for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's not condemning having money in your bank account. So don't worry if you've got some money in your bank account, which I think most of you, some of you may look around and say, I'm not really that rich. But if you realize in comparison to the rest of the world, we are very, extremely wealthy. We are filthy rich compared to the rest of the world's population. And so oftentimes we like to look at those who are above us and say, well, I'm not you know, as rich as this person, but there's a whole lot more people who are, have less in their bank account than, or even have a bank account than what we do. And so we must be careful. This is a very good warning, a strong warning for us to take into consideration regarding our bank accounts, regarding our riches. 
As a means of illustration, Jesus says something that has caused much debate regarding the proper interpretation of what he was saying. In verse 24, Jesus speaks about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Many have sought to properly explain what Jesus meant by speaking about a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Okay? And there's no shortage of explanations or possibilities out there. Okay? I'll cover just a few of them. We won't have time to go over all of them. Okay? Some suggest that Jesus was merely modifying an ancient proverb of the day that was common, and he was speaking figuratively, not, not literally. Okay? The Talmud, uh, the Jewish body of teachings uh, present during Jesus' day, contained a, a similar phrase used when trying to explain something impossible or something really difficult. The, the old proverb said, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. And so elephants, they were common in Persia or today Iran, okay, and where the Talmud was written, okay, but not in Jerusalem. And so uh, some speculate that Jesus simply modified this old proverb from the Talmud with something relatable to the Jewish people, a camel instead of an elephant, and that it was just a proverb used to explain something seemingly impossible, speaking figuratively, not literally. Kind of like, I, I tried to think of an English one, and the only one that came to me is when pigs fly. We say something like impossible, really, and that's not really going to happen ever. We say, oh, when pigs fly. I don't know if that makes sense, but in, I think it does. That's a common phrase, right? Okay, I'm getting nods. All right, good. Okay. Uh, others, they theorize that there's actually a misunderstanding of the language that Jesus was speaking. They suggest that Jesus was speaking in Aramaic at this time and that the phrase he used got misunderstood. Okay? Evidently, the Aramaic word for camel is also the same word for rope, possibly because the ropes were made from camel hair. And so supporters of this theory state that the writers of the letters must not have known that the spoken Aramaic word for camel can also be rope, and they mistakenly wrote down the Greek word for camel instead of the Greek word for rope. Like I said, there's lots of theories out there, okay? There's even a theory that suggests a typo in the Greek language, okay? Proponents of this theory suggest that the Greek word for camel, kamilos, Okay, should really be kamelos, which is the Greek word for cable or rope. Okay? Still others suggest that, and this one's probably the most prominent of the suggested interpretations, that, and it's been passed around for the uh, last several couple hundred years, that Jesus was referring to a small gate in uh, a wall, either in Jerusalem or Damascus, depending on who you read the account from, that was called the eye of the needle, that there was this opening in a gate uh, called the eye of the needle. And so uh, the idea here, the supporters of this interpretation state that the, the small gate in the wall was used for after hours when the city gates had already been closed. And, and a traveling merchant that was loaded up with a, had his camel loaded up, would not be able to fit through this small opening in the gate. Okay? So supporters of this idea suggest that the only way that a camel could enter into the city was by passing through this very small, narrow gate called the Eye of the Needle. Okay? 
And the only way that the camel would be able to fit was if they were to strip everything that was on him, everything that was packed up on him, everything that he was burdened with. All had to be stripped from him. The camel needed to be knelt down really low, crawling and squeezing and being pulled through to get to the other side. People suggest that Jesus was trying to say that the only way rich people can enter into heaven was if they were like the camel that was just stripped of all of its worldly goods and knelt down in humility, crawling into the kingdom of heaven. There are other ideas, but as I said, we won't, don't have time to go over all them. Some of them are a combination of those. Okay? Which is correct? What did Jesus mean when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Well, let's look at how the disciples responded to help us possibly come to a proper conclusion here. Verse 25 and 26. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples, after hearing what Jesus said, they were greatly astonished, and they questioned, who then can be saved? And that day it was believed that those who were rich were experiencing the benefits of a right standing with, and a strong relationship with the Lord. A great many of the Pharisees and the religious elite were known to be very wealthy individuals, and they taught that they were rich because they were so close to God. You see, the prosperity gospel isn't a new gospel. Okay? It's been around for, for as long as you can think of. Okay? The idea that, oh, God will, you know, you should be rich if you have a good standing with the Lord. That's junk. We'll just say that's junk. Okay? The prosperity gospel uh, was going around even at that time. And it seems as though the disciples were most likely inclined to accept this teaching of the day. And, and that, that's why they wondered, who then can be saved? Okay? If the rich people that have been showered with God's blessings because of their right standing with the Lord aren't able to be saved, how can anyone be saved? You know, and based upon the response from the disciples, I don't think that we're talking about a language issue or a typo that really should read rope or a small cable instead of camel. I do not believe, and I maybe pose the question, would the disciples really be that amazed and astonished and think that nobody could be saved if Jesus was simply speaking about a rope passing through the eye of the needle? I don't think they would have had such a drastic response. Also, if this eye of the needle a gate was known about by the disciples, which we would assume they did, seeing as how Jesus used it in his exchange with them, that they would realize that it's very possible for a camel to pass through a small opening, to pass through the eye of the needle, this gate. Other difficulties with the idea is that no such gates are said to have been found in the ruins of the ancient walls. So it's like the, that gate that they say was the eye of the needle. You don't see it. It's not in any of the architectural designs. It's just not there. I think the only reasonable interpretation is to say that Jesus was speaking literally. 
and that the disciples understood him to be speaking literally, and that's why they are so greatly astonished and are questioning, well, then who? Nobody can be saved then, because it's impossible. And that's what Jesus' response supports as well. Because Jesus, he he supports the idea of this being an an impossible thing because Jesus said, with men, this is impossible. It's not if we, you know, strip ourselves of our goods and, you know, humbly squeeze through, we'll be okay. That's That's not what Jesus is teaching us. He's saying it's impossible. Like a camel, a big, huge camel passing through the eye of a sewing needle, that's impossible. It's ridiculous to even think that you can do it. And that's what Jesus is trying to get the point across. It's impossible for you to do it. There's nothing that you can do to earn or inherit eternal life. You see, the rich young ruler, he thought he could do something to obtain eternal life. But there was nothing that he could do that would get him into heaven. It was impossible for him to get in on his own efforts and on his own good works. Nobody can get into heaven by following the law or by doing good works. But, Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. The only way we can be saved is by God's intervention in our life. It's not about what we can do to have eternal life. It is about what God can do and what God has already done for us. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law and to create a way for us to be saved from our sin. Without God's intervention, salvation would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, a way has been made. Today we looked at a guy who looked like he had things together. Hey? He was a, a good guy. He was rich, young, powerful. He was still lacking something, though. What he was lacking was a relationship with Jesus Christ. He needed Christ in order to find the satisfaction that he knew he lacked. Maybe today that you can relate to this rich, young ruler. You feel like you're a pretty good person but you know that you're lacking something still. Or perhaps you've been thinking that, you know, good works would be good enough to get into heaven, and I'm just going to rely upon that. I'm a good person, and I haven't done a lot of terrible things, and I'm going to be okay. I'm here to tell you that being a good person or doing good works are not going to get you into heaven. The only way one enters into the kingdom of heaven is by believing upon the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Upon the cross, he died for all the sins of the world, and he offers to all who would believe a choice to accept that work or to deny it. And if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do not be like the rich young ruler who walked away sorrowful with worldly sorrow because you don't like what I'm saying or you can't accept it. Don't be like that man okay, who was unwilling to come to Christ. Don't let your sin stand between you any longer. 
for those of us who are saved and are walking with the Lord, there's still some good stuff here for us as well. Namely, I was looking at this, and in this account of the rich young ruler, we get to see how Jesus, he witnessed to this rich young ruler and how he left for us a good example to follow, I believe. If we look at it, we see that the first thing Jesus did was distinguish the difference between God and man. He made certain that the rich young ruler understood that God alone is good and that we are not. There's a separation between God and man. That's a good point to start with. To help prove the point to the rich young ruler, Jesus took him to the law. The law shows us that we're sinners. It identifies for us what sin is. It shows us how we've fallen short of God's law. He took him to the Ten Commandments. And we can do the same. Going over the Ten Commandments is an easy way to show people that we've fallen, that we've failed, that we've failed to live up to the fundamental basic laws of God. It gets even easier to prove the point when we consider the spirit of the law and how Jesus was able to uh, speak about adultery in the heart and anger that's like murder. And we said, well, you know, have you ever been angry at your brother for no good reason? Uh, yeah, I think so. Or have you ever lusted after a woman before? Uh, yeah, then you're guilty. See, we need to be able to show people the bad news before we show them the good news. And so that's why going to the law is a good thing to do. We're able to say, look, God's good. You're not. Let me show you how I can prove that to you. You're not a good person. Not, not in a mean way. We do it lovingly, but we do it honestly. We say, look, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner too. We all are in the same boat. Okay? Jesus explained how perfection was needed for anyone that tries to go at it alone. Keeping the law and doing it on your own means that you can't make one mistake. If you do so, you're guilty and will not be permitted into the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we realize, we have to tell people, they say, well, I'm still a good person. They say, hey, look, it doesn't matter if you're, you think you're good. If you, you're not perfect, which I haven't really been able to find anyone that actually thinks that they're perfect. Maybe in their mind they think they're perfect, but if really comes down, push comes down to shove, people will go, yeah, I've, I, I've done that before, you know. Jesus, he then called the man to get rid of the things that were keeping him from God and to come and follow Jesus. And we can do similarly, encouraging people to turn from their sin, to trust in the work of Jesus Christ, not their own. And I want to encourage you guys who are, are here and you're walking with the Lord you know, to take opportunities to share God's plan of salvation with those around you who may be in need of the Lord's touch in their life. You know, you know we didn't get to cover it exactly because the rich young ruler, he kind of left, but there's more things that we can do as we look at uh, what Jesus kind of, he turned his attention to the disciples, continued to talk about how salvation on ourselves, it's impossible, Okay. But God's made a way. All things are possible. And the way that he's made is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can share that message with people. I want to encourage you guys to be bold and to be faithful in sharing that message with those around you. We're going to close out our service. As I mentioned, I wanted to finish the chapter, but I knew I wouldn't be able to get through it all. And so we're going to close with one last song of worship. And if you're here today and something is resonating in your heart, about today's message and you'd like to uh, perhaps talk with me about something we covered today i'll be up front after service i'd love 
to be able to speak with you. Uh, perhaps you need prayer or encouragement about something going on in life. I want to make myself available for that as well. And so uh, please don't leave here if the Lord's speaking to your heart. Okay? I'd love to be able to pray with you and encourage you in what God is showing you. Amen? Amen. All right, Walter, come on up. Let's close in a word of prayer as they come. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we read of here in the rich young ruler. Lord, uh, you loved him, and you desired for him to come and follow you, but you weren't going to force yourself upon him. Lord, he made a, a very foolish decision. Lord, I pray that there's nobody here that would make a similar foolish decision. Lord, I pray that we're all here have made that decision to walk with you, to come after you, to follow you, to, to give to you our sin, allow your work upon the cross to, to cover our sin. Lord, and that we've all come in faith trusting in the completed work of the cross, knowing that it gives to us access into eternity. It's not anything that we did. It's not anything that we can do. It's all about what you've done for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would walk in faith and walk, walk with confidence in, in your work, not in our own. Lord, and I do pray for if there's anybody here that just hasn't made that decision, that they would make that decision today. Lord, give us a boldness to share your message with the people around us. We can get to follow an example that you gave to us. Just showing people that we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of you. We thank you for the way that you've provided. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.